You can't pray with people without hugging their neck. So give everybody a big hug. Hug their neck. Good. And did everybody get a Bible scan study guide when you came in tonight? If you did not get a Bible scan study guide, if you'd please raise your hand. Oh, we have a young lady right down here. Looks like she's on Ken Ackley's side. Right down here, Kent. I thought your side was from that aisle over there over. Jesse Waters, is this did he get uh that's his sister. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, oh, we've got another. We've got two more right over here. And Dave Tobin was on duty tonight. I can't believe it. Oh, okay. You're forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else need a Bible scan study guide? How many have every study guide from Genesis all the way through Ezra? Cool, man. How many are missing some study guides and you would like to get them? You know what? They're about to be available on our website. So we're about to have them all available on our website. So you'll be able to go to the website, just pull up the study guide that you missed, print it off. Is that cool or what? Paul Allen's here in the building somewhere. Paul, I've just put the pressure on you. You've just been called into action, Paul. We're in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. And tonight is our 30th Bible scan study. Wow. And we're in Ezra. There's only 99. 99 weeks and you'll be through the whole Bible, baby. Ezra chapter 1. When God called me to be a pastor, I never thought that that calling would include renovating a dilapidated building. But it did. Our church's former location in Stone Mountain, was an abandoned warehouse before we moved in. If you weren't with us in those days, don't worry, you didn't miss much. At least not as far as facility was concerned. It was a run-down warehouse. But we went in, and we rebuilt, and we turned it into a blessed, functioning, wonderful place to meet and worship God. But in the process, I learned that renovations are never easy. You run into all kinds of snags and obstacles and setbacks when you renovate. Our experience taught me four important lessons about remodeling projects. First, it takes longer than you planned. Second, it costs more than you figured. Third, it is messier than you anticipated. And fourth, it requires greater determination than you expected. This was also the experience of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and to renovate their homeland. Two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, describe the three waves of Jewish patriots who returned to Jerusalem to remodel and to rebuild. The first return is in Ezra chapters 1 through 6 under a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel's primary focus was to rebuild the temple. Ezra 7 through 10 recounts the second return of Jews from Babylon under a man named Ezra. Ezra encourages the people. He primarily wants to rebuild the people, encourage them to move on and to get busy serving the Lord. And the third return is in the book of Nehemiah, who rebuilds the walls. So Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, Ezra rebuilds the people, and Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. And guess what they discover? It takes longer than you planned. It costs more than you figured. It's messier than you anticipated. And it requires greater determination than you expected. 
The year was 536 B.C. And dramatic events occurred along the Euphrates River. In a miraculous turn of events, the impregnable bastion known as Babylon fell to a coalition of Medes and Persians. You see, the walls of the city were unbreachable. So the Persian general, in a stroke of genius, his name was Cyrus, he dammed up the river that flowed under the walls. His troops entered into Babylon through the dried-up riverbed. It was a complete surprise to the Babylonians. And in essence, the city fell without firing a shot. Overnight, one of the mightiest kingdoms the world has ever seen crumbles. And a new empire is born. King Cyrus of Persia takes the throne and he ushers in what the historians call the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, it had been Babylonian policy to deport people that they conquered back to Babylon. As a result, the city and its suburbs were filled with foreigners. This, though, was not the philosophy of the Persians. They figured their subjects would be happier if allowed to live in their native lands. And so Cyrus sends these dispossessed people back home. Ezra begins the same way Second Chronicle ends, with a copy of the decree that specifically allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. It begins in verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Though it can be debated, Cyrus sounds like a true believer, doesn't he? It is certainly true that King Cyrus was heavily influenced by Daniel, or at least we assume so. At the very moment the Persian troops were flooding the city through the dried-up riverbed, Daniel was before the Babylonian king Belshazzar predicting God's judgment, reading the handwriting that God had written on the wall. Cyrus appointed Daniel to a high-level post in his new cabinet. And I'm sure the first thing that Daniel did was show King Cyrus the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah, chapters 44 and 45, had predicted Cyrus's rise to power 100 years before the man was even born. In fact, Isaiah mentions Cyrus by name and describes in detail some of the events surrounding his takeover of Babylon. God referred to King Cyrus as the deliverer of the Jews, and Cyrus took it all serious. He wants to live up to his prophetic portrait, and therefore he issues this decree, even foots the bill to send the Jews back home to Judah. In verse 8, Cyrus does another thing. He even returns the treasures from Solomon's temple that had been plundered by the Babylonians 70 years earlier. You remember the mistake Hezekiah made, showing off the temple treasures the Babylonians remembered them, and when they conquered Judah, Jerusalem, in 605 B.C., they took those temple treasures back to Babylon. But one of the things Cyrus does is he releases them. He gives them back to the Jews to return to their temple. Look at verse 5. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Notice, while God is working in the heart of King Cyrus, he is also working in the heart of the Jews. Remember, some of these exiles had been in Babylon for 70 years. That's a lifetime. In addition, the prophet Jeremiah had counseled them to get jobs, to build homes, to settle in, they were going to be in Babylon for a while. Many Jews had become successful in Babylon. They had risen to positions of prominence. Daniel, of course, was a good example. 
one of the chief leaders in the, in the nation, in the empire. As a result, some of the Jews didn't want to return. Jerusalem was nothing but rubble. Rebuilding would be hard. Why bother to go back to a ruined city when you had a life right there in Babylon, right there along the Euphrates? This is why it took the Holy Spirit to move on their hearts, to stir them up. God moved upon them to convict them of their need, to reveal their need for salvation. And in this case, it was to return to Judah, to the holy land that God had promised them. I think this whole story is a wonderful picture of what God wants to do in us. Jesus died. He rose. Today, he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's on the throne. In essence, he overthrew the spiritual Babylon, the kingdom of Satan. Jesus has become our deliverer, and he has made possible for everyone who was formerly under Satan's domain to come back home, to return to God, to enjoy the holy land and a holy life, living in the presence of God. In essence, Jesus is our Cyrus, and his decree is the gospel. It's the proclamation that allows us to start over, to begin to rebuild. Our venture was paid for on the cross of Jesus. He has foot the bill, just like Cyrus. Even our former treasures, that which Satan has stolen from us, have been returned. Hey, talents have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Integrity has been recovered through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Relationships are mended through Christ. Joy is rejuvenated. Purpose is restored. All that's left for us is what was left for the Jews. And that is to respond to the Holy Spirit's stirring and to rise up in faith and rebuild. Understand, to become a Christian is in essence to rebuild. It's to start over. Understand, Jesus doesn't tinker. Some of you guys tinker on your car. You just kind of play around with this and play around with that. don't really do anything. You just tinker. Jesus doesn't tinker. He's not into slight alterations or minor modifications. He does more than fine-tune. His intentions are not to help you attain your current goals or to reinforce your present lifestyle. Jesus brings to our lives a whole new direction. He builds a whole new lifestyle. Jesus is not an accessory that we add to an already crowded life. When Jesus becomes Lord, his goal is to completely remodel. He views our lives as rubble. He basically guts and starts over. He rebuilds. The Jews were uprooted and they were replanted in a new land. And this is God's plan for you and me. Repentance is being uprooted from your past life. The new birth is being replanted in the life that God has for you. To be a Christian means leaving Babylon behind and moving to a holy land indeed. Now, chapter 2 is the passenger list of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem. And notice in chapter 1, verse 8, the Jewish leader who leads the return is named Shezbazar. While in chapter 2, verse 2, his name is Zerubbabel. Well, who is it? Shezbazar or Zerubbabel? It could be the same man. You remember Daniel had a Babylonian name. He also had a Hebrew name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian name. They also had Hebrew names. Shezbazar could have been his Babylonian name, while his Hebrew name may have been Zerubbabel. Or Zerubbabel might have been Shezbazar's nephew, This possibility is implied in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 18. And when Uncle Shezbazar died shortly after arriving in Judah, he turned over the authority and the responsibility for the operation to his nephew Zerubbabel. What's sad, though, is to see the small number of Jews who returned to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 64, 
lists the total at 42,360. Understand, there were well over a million Jews living in Babylon. Why did only 42,000 return? I'll tell you why. They had become attached to their pagan surroundings, to their worldly environment. They had become frozen to what was familiar. They had been glued to what was guaranteed. They had become chained to what was comfortable. Why give up a soft and cushy existence in order to endure the rigors and hardships and dangers that come with an iffy outcome? Reminds me of the prospective employer interviewing a young engineer fresh out of MIT. He said, what starting salary are you looking for? The young man answered, well, somewhere around $125,000 a year, you know, give or take a little, depending on the benefits. Well, the employer said, well, what would you say about a five-week vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, matching retirement funds, and a company car at least every two years, say a red Corvette, plus the $125,000. The engineer sat straight up. He said, wow, are you kidding? The employer said, yeah, but you started it. (laughs) You know, the young engineer was like most people. He wanted it all handed to him. He wanted it all given to him. He didn't want to have to work for it. He didn't want to have to endure any hardship to obtain it. He just wanted it given to him. God wanted his people back in the land that he had given them. He had opened the door to bring them back. He had even payrolled the operation, bankrolled the operation. But it would not be easy. They would have to rise up. They would have to return. They would have to uproot. And they would have to go in faith. That's never easy. The choice for them, though, was obedience or comfort. God's way or the easy way. And so often that's our choice. God is calling us to obey. Even if that becomes the more difficult route. God, it doesn't... The point in this life is not comfort and security. The point in this life is the kingdom of God. And so often we have to make a choice. Will we follow God or will we stay in Babylon? When the exiles arrived in Jerusalem, they went to the Temple Mount. And it must have broke their hearts. It brought tears to their eyes to see the rubble of this once glorious temple. Verses 68 and 69 tell us that it prompted them to begin to give of their finances. They were so moved, it says, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. Once everyone had settled in, they began to work. It started in the seventh month, which was the festive month. It was the fall, uh, the, the month in the fall where the three feasts occurred, the trumpets, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. And chapter 3, verse 1 tells us the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. They came together in unity to start work on the temple. And it's interesting, Zerubbabel's first step was to set up an altar for sacrifice. He immediately reinstituted the Levitical offerings that were required under the law of Moses. I think whenever we begin a work for God, it needs to begin with an altar. It needs to begin with a prayer of dedication, understanding that the effort, the goal, is all dedicated to God. Seven months later, the foundation of the temple is laid. And the priests and the people, they respond with praise and thanksgiving. And in chapter 3, verse 11, we're told that they sang and shouted, For He is good, and for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. It was a glorious day, the day the foundation was laid. The most important phase of construction is the laying of the foundation, and the people rejoice to see it. You know, without a solid foundation, any structure, a temple or a life, is in jeopardy. This is so true in the Christian life. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus told us, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And you remember that house endured the testings of the storm because it had a solid foundation. 
Here's how you lay a solid foundation, though, according to Jesus. He who hears these sayings of mine and does them. How do you lay a foundation? How do you lay a solid spiritual foundation in your relationship with God? You study God's Word. You take heed to His words. And then you apply them to your life. It's just that simple. There are no shortcuts. If you want a solid foundation in your Christian life, you need to hear the sayings of Jesus and you need to be actively applying them to your life. This is how a church, the New Testament temple, also lays a sturdy foundation. It exalts Scripture. It takes seriously the teaching of the Word of God, the applying of the Word of God to every aspect of life. It's been said a pastor is like an electrician. He takes a room full of live wires and sees that they're all properly grounded. That's how you lay a solid foundation. Verses 12 and 13 give us an interesting insight. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. Now, you see, there were some old men in the crowd, some old geezers, you know, 80, 90 years old. And they had seen Solomon's temple with their own eyes. And they could already tell that this new temple was going to be nothing compared to Solomon's. It was going to pale in comparison. It was smaller. It lacked the lavishness, the ornamentation, the craftsmanship. And so when they saw this temple, they wept. They realized afresh the consequences of their sin, the mistakes that the nation had made, which led up to the destruction of Solomon's temple. Whereas the young men, they shouted for joy. Their eyes were on the future. This was a significant step in the reconstruction of their temple and their nation. And we're told that the weeping and the rejoicing all kind of blended together so that you, you really couldn't tell one from the other. It just It kind of formed a single sound. I think that this may well be the purest form of praise. A combination, really, of weeping and rejoicing. When we're upfront about our sin, when we're willing to weep over our sin, then it makes God's forgiveness that much sweeter. It makes the joys that much more jubilant. Real praise to me is the combination of a broken heart over the past and a blessed hope for the future. It's a combination of repentance and rejoicing, sorrow over sin and joy in Jesus Christ. Our heart needs to constantly sort of come together with that one sound, weeping over what we've done, but rejoicing over what Jesus has done for us. You know, a work for God would be easy if it were not for what happens in chapter 4. Opposition arises. You know, whenever God's people rise up to do a work for God, God's enemies will rise up to stop them. Warren Wiersbe writes, as soon as God starts to bless, the enemy starts to battle. I love how Samuel Rutherford put it. If we were not strangers on the earth, the hounds of the world would not bark at us. My dog barks at strangers. And that's why the people of this world bark at us. There were a group of people living in the land. They were strangers to the land. They were a mixed race of Israelites and foreigners. Later, we will call them the Samaritans. And for 70 years, they have enjoyed having things their way. They had been imported into the land and mixed together with the Israelites that were left there by the Assyrians. And so they had had their way. And they weren't very happy with the Jews returning back home. Surely, in their minds, a Jewish resurgence would throw a damper on their party and over their power. And in Ezra chapter 4, Zerubbabel's enemies try three tactics to hinder this rebuilding work. First, they try infiltration. Second, they try irritation. And third, they try intimidation. 
And I think you'll find that the devil will use the same three tools against you. Infiltration, irritation, intimidation. First, notice their attempt to infiltrate. We're told in chapter 4, verse 2, that they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Sheradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And what they don't tell Zerubbabel is that they also sacrificed to other gods as well. They were idolaters. Verse 3 says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, who was the priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They almost sound rude, don't they? Understand, Satan will often pose as an angel of light. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. He will approach us with friendly overtures with welcoming posture, with kind words, with good intentions. But don't believe him. He wants to infiltrate in order to contaminate and ultimately annihilate. You remember Jesus warned us about Satan. He gave us Satan's intention. John 10 verse 10 tells us that the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's always his intention towards you. Whenever it becomes apparent that Satan can't wipe out the church from the outside, what he will often do is just join it so that he can sabotage it from the inside. Most of the time he can do a whole lot more damage from within than he could have done from without. And this is what happens here. Not thinking that they can thwart the effort, they try to join the effort so that they can sabotage it, so that they can infiltrate it, but Zerubbabel is wise enough not to let them. Guys, the world may appear to be your friend, but it's not. The world and the church are headed in totally opposite directions. Never forget that. When the enemies of Zerubbabel realize that they won't really be able to infiltrate the ranks of the Jews... They next tried to irritate their efforts. Notice verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. The enemies of God deluged Zerubbabel with hindrances and with irritations. Zoning ordinances. Building permits. Building code compliances. Anything just to irritate the Jews and cause them to conclude that, hey, this is just not worth the hassle. Irritation is one of Satan's most effective tools. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, makes this statement. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. In other words, in other words it's the little things, isn't it, that really wear us down. The big things we can handle. They're challenges. We rise up. We face them. But it's those daily distractions. That's what eventually gets under our skin and wears us down. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. They take the highest toll. It's the constant friction that does the most damage to our resolve. I learned this week an interesting statistic. That the earth's termite population outweighs the earth's human population two to one. Did you know that? You take all of the termites and all the humans, and we're outweighed by the termites by double. There's a lot of termites out there. And they're trying to eat away your house. There are a lot of little irritations out there that are trying to eat away your God-given joy and contentment, and peace of mind. Don't let them. Don't fall victim to irritation. The third means the enemies of Zerubbabel uses to hinder the work is intimidation. In chapter 4, they write an inflammatory letter to the king of Persia. You see, by this point, a new ruler has taken over in Cyrus's place. 
And the Samaritans hope that they can influence him against the Jews. And this malicious letter that they write is recorded in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. It's interesting, the letter refers to Jerusalem's past. And it warns the king of Persia that if he allows the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the Jews will rebel against Persia like they've rebelled against everybody. You know, and they'll just cause him all kinds of headaches and problems. And sadly, the king agrees with the Samaritans and with their letter. And his response is in chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. And in essence, he shuts down the construction of the temple for 15 years. The foundation was laid in 535 B.C., shortly after they had returned to the land. But the work ceased shortly thereafter and did not resume until 520 B.C. Like I said, remodeling projects take longer than you planned. In the meantime, God sends to the Jews there in Judah two prophets to encourage them and to keep the flame of hope alive. Zechariah and Haggai minister during this time. When you read their prophecies, remember that they parallel the story of Zerubbabel. You know the setback must have completely discouraged Zerubbabel. When he received that letter from Persia, it was like a punch in the gut. They had just gotten started, and now they had to stop. But Zechariah encourages Zerubbabel. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 17, or verse 7, Zechariah compares the job of building the temple to a mighty mountain. Here's what he says. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, Zerubbabel's going to climb this mountain. Zerubbabel's going to conquer this challenge. Zerubbabel is going to finish the temple and put the capstone in its place. What a wonderful, encouraging prophecy. In verse 6 of the same chapter, Zechariah reminds him how it's going to be done. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And Zerubbabel will need to be patient. He needs to realize that the work that God has called him to do is a spiritual work. He needs to rely not on human brains, not on human brawn, but he needs to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work in him and through him. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit as well. The prophecy of Haggai is what eventually refuels the fire and it causes the Jews to resume the work. Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 challenges the people. He says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Wow. That's like a cup of cold water right in the face. For those 15 years, they had been busy working on their houses. And now all of a sudden he says, wait a minute, you're going to live in these nice paneled houses, but you're not going to support and help to rebuild a house for God. And it convicts the people. And they begin to do the work again. Now, when Zerubbabel reconvenes the construction, the governor sends a letter to King Darius. And this time the Jews plead their case. And they ask him to review the records. See if King Cyrus had not authorized the rebuilding of the temple. And in chapter 6, they find Cyrus's earlier decree. And of course, it not only authorized the work, but it allocated funds from the Persian treasury to pay for the project. And so Zerubbabel finishes the temple. The local authorities even have to pay for it. <laughs> Comes out of the taxes they've accumulated and God wins a wonderful victory. And as the prophet Zechariah had promised, the mountain crumbled. The capstone was put in place. A project that earlier had looked like a mountain to Zerubbabel became a plain through the power of the Holy Spirit. The second temple, as it's called, was finished in February of 515 B.C. Now, between Ezra chapter 6... In Ezra chapter 7, there is a period of 57 years. And here's some chronology that will help you kind of put it all in perspective. 
The first wave of Jews returned to Judah with Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. They started work on the temple in 535 B.C. and they finished it in 515 B.C. For the next six decades, very little goes on there in Judah. Most of the Jews are content to remain in Babylon. But it's during that time that the wonderful story of Esther takes place. In fact, the book of Esther will spotlight how God protected the Jews who were still living in Persia. In 445 B.C., the Persian king, Artaxerxes, will issue a decree. And it commissions a man named Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. But before the walls can be rebuilt, God needs to motivate the builders The builders need to be rebuilt. The people have become lethargic. They've compromised spiritually. They're in need of revival. And that's why 13 years before Nehemiah, God raises up a priest by the name of Ezra. And Ezra returns to Judah along with many of the Jews, and he leads a revival of purity among the people. And so Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra rebuilt the people, and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 tells us, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Ezra came to Jerusalem in 550 or 458 BC, 458. And he brought with him many of the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the priests, they were the singers, they were those who ministered within the temple, and the temple needed workers. It had been rebuilt. Now it needed to be staffed. And so Ezra came back with the Levites. Verse 6 calls Ezra a skilled scribe. Now we usually think of a scribe as some monk sitting at a wooden desk with a quill and an inkwell, you know, sitting there on his desk and just with painstaking, you know, detail, copying the scriptures onto some sheepskin scroll. That's our idea of a scribe. But most of the scribes were skillful communicators. They studied God's word, yes, but then they taught it to the people. And this was Ezra. Ezra had taught God's law to the Jews who were living back in Babylon. It's interesting. It was during their 70 years in Babylon that an important Jewish institution developed. You've probably seen one in your community. It's called a synagogue. You see, before the captivity, the people worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. But while in Babylon, there was no temple. And so they gathered together in what they called the synagogue to study the scriptures, to pray to worship their God. When the rebuilt temple of Zerubbabel was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the Jews were again scattered throughout the world without a temple. And again, it was the synagogue that has kept Judaism alive over the last 2,000 years. Ezra had no doubt taught in the synagogues there in Babylon. And now God was calling him to return to Judah. And verse 9 tells us, that he came 900 miles in about four months and made the pilgrimage back to Judah. Chapter 7, verse 11 makes an interesting reference. Ezra is not only a skillful scribe, but we're told here that he was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. Here was the original Bible answer man. He was an expert. In the word of God. How would you like to be known. As an expert. In God's word. Wow. Oh who is he? Who, who is he? Oh they're an expert. In the word of God. That, that would be the highest form of flattery. Let me ask you. What is your expertise? Everybody has one. What is your expertise? I'll tell you where it is. It's in the area where you've spent the most time, where you've got the most experience. 
where you've applied yourself to the greatest degree. It's where you've invested the majority of your intensity and your passion and your energy and your concentration. That's where you're an expert, I'm sure. Let me suggest that when it comes to the Bible, we all should be an expert. Not just Ezra, not just the pastor, but we all should be an expert in the Word of God. But you say, wait a minute, Sandy, this is a big book. There's a lot in the Bible. How can I be an expert? Well, you probably feel the same way about the Bible that I feel about automotive repair or cooking cheesecakes or stamp collecting. It just seems more than I could grasp, but that's because I haven't spent any time in it. How do you become an expert in automotive repair? Well, it's just keeping your head under the hood of a car all the time. How do you become an expert in cooking cheesecakes? Well, you get in the kitchen, you start cooking them. How do you become an expert in stamp collecting? You give some time, some effort, some energy to that particular activity. Look at what is said of Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10. Here is how you master a subject. It says, he prepared his heart. That's how you become an expert. You prepare your heart. You become an expert in Scripture the same way you become an expert in any other activity. You prepare. You put your heart into it. You study it and seek God. You apply it. You share it with others. Just like the automotive expert keeps his head under the hood of the car, you keep your head in the book. That's how you become an expert in it. That's how Ezra became an expert. That's how you will become an expert. The Bible wasn't given to sit on your shelf. It certainly wasn't given to adorn your coffee table and to press the corsages and the flowers. That wasn't why God gave you your Bible. It's been said, the best thing to do with the Bible is to know it in the head. Stow it in the heart, sow it in the world, and show it in the life. Guys, let's all be experts in the Word of God. In chapter 7, verses 12 through 26, we have the letter that commissioned Ezra. And Ezra's job was threefold. To encourage the people, to embellish the temple, and to establish judges in the land. King Artaxerxes even pledges to pay Ezra's expenses up to certain limits that are set in verse 22 of chapter 7. Notice verse 27. Part of Ezra's job was to beautify the house of the Lord. Zerubbabel had his hands full just building the temple. And so he wasn't concerned a whole lot about detail and about finish work and trim and gold plating and ornamentation. I mean, he was just trying to get the thing finished. He was trying to get that capstone on it. It was a struggle just to get the walls up. But understand, God doesn't just want a temple. He has always commanded a glorious temple. And therefore, Ezra came back to embellish and beautify the house of God. This is also true with the New Testament temple, with the church. Guys, it's not just enough for us to come together once a week or twice a week. God wants the temple to be beautiful. He wants us to love each other. He wants His love to be reflected in our good works and in our spiritual fruit. He wants the quality of the relationships that we have with each other to be loving and kind, to be grand and glorious in essence, to be beautiful. He wants to shine His light through us as brightly as possible. Ezra concludes in verse 28, So I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. In the first 20 verses of chapter 8, Ezra lists the families that came from Babylon with him, and he mentions a total of 1,496 men, but there were no Levites. And this was a problem. How do you embellish the temple with no servants for the temple? According to the law, only the Levites could serve in the temple. 
And so Ezra sends recruiters to a outpost, a city called Kesiphia. It was a settlement of Levites. And they came back with 38 Levites and 220 servants. And I'm sure we know the line of reasoning that was used to recruit these Levites. Hey, what's a Levite without a temple? It's true. What's a cook without a kitchen? What's a mechanic without a shop? What's a chemist without a laboratory? What's a Christian without a church? How can we be worshipers of God if we never enter what God considers to be the temple? Not the building, not the walls, but we are the temple of God. How can we be a child of God if we never take the time, if we never make the effort to relate to the rest of the family, to communicate with our brothers and sisters? I suppose it's possible to worship and never visit the temple, but I think we all could agree it wouldn't be healthy, would it? Ezra's delegation had a lot of money. And he had a concern, a worry really, about being a target. You see, robbers roamed the roads from Persia to Judah. And Ezra debated on asking the king for a police escort. But hey, he'd already told the king that God was going to take care of them and protect them. And so he didn't want to undermine his witness. And so he doesn't really know what to do. And so he does what we all should do whenever we don't know what to do. And that is in verse 21, we're told, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. He humbled himself and he sought the Lord for wisdom. Don't underestimate that. Don't just gloss over that. When you need wisdom, When you don't know what to do. When you don't know the right way for you or for your little ones or for your possessions. Seek the Lord. Humble yourself. Seek His wisdom before you make a move. You won't regret it. And God supplied Ezra with a solution. He divided the wealth among 12 priests. And so in case one or two of them didn't make it, the rest of the money would arrive safely, and so the majority of the funds and all would make their destination. This is what my wife and I do whenever we go on vacation. She takes half the money, I take half the money. That way, if she gets ripped off, we've still got enough money to get home. If I get ripped off, we've still got enough money to get home. We both get ripped off. We're calling somebody. This is a good plan. It's worked for us. It worked for Ezra. But it was unnecessary because Ezra's delegation did arrive in Jerusalem without incident. But before he can unpack his bag, he gets some bad news. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Ezra himself tells us, The leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Uptites, the Adesites. Just kidding. <laughs> the Mosquitoites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this trespass. Isn't that terrible? The leaders, those that should have been examples, were the chief perpetrators. Notice how Ezra reacts to all this in verse 3. He says, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. He is great. Just pulled the hair out of his head. When the kids were little, I used to sport a beard. And, and they would, I'd hold them up like this and they would reach up and they would just take their little hand and they'd get in my beard. And they, you know, they'd do that little clutching reflex, you know. 
And they just kind of clutch down on it. And then they, you know, daddy, you know, and they almost pull your, pull the hair out of your face. It hurt. It was painful. And so imagine Ezra, the agony he's involved in here. He rips his clothes. That's the oriental sign for angst and anguish. He pulls the hair out of his head and beard. He's agonizing over the sin of these people. It just wipes him out. You've got to understand what these Jews have done. These people have seen their city leveled, their temple burned, their babies hauled off in exile because of the sin of idolatry. And what launched the sin of idolatry? They could trace their demise all the way back to Solomon when he married foreign wives. Solomon had signed these peace treaties with these surrounding nations. And in exchange for the peace treaty, that he was given the daughter of the king in that country. And so he had gone into these relationships and into these marriages against the will of God. And in each case, the marriage altar had led to the altar of an idol. When he embraced these pagan wives, they brought with them their pagan gods into the marriage, and it eventually caused Solomon to compromise his loyalty to the one true God, and it drugged the whole nation into idolatry. This is what blew Ezra away. Is history about to repeat itself? Are the Jews about to make the same colossal mistake all over again? Ezra is stunned that the Jews are even flirting with the possibility. You'd think marrying unbelievers would be the last sin they would want to commit. But they were doing it. Verse 1 tells us the people of Israel have not separated themselves. You know, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are called to live lives separate from this world. This is a vital principle. And it's a principle that's being neglected today by many churches. But it's also a principle that can be easily misunderstood. Often, this is interpreted to mean that we as Christians should separate ourselves from people spatially or culturally. Back in the Middle Ages, monks and priests would literally go off into the deserts and climb up on top of mountains to separate themselves from the world. It was just a literal spatial separation. In the church I grew up in, we separated ourselves culturally. We refused to listen to rock music when rock music was groovy. You know, we wore our hair in crew cuts when people were growing their hair long. You know, we wore the peg leg pants when bell bottoms were in. You know, we just looked weird. But we were, we were trying to be separate as the Bible commanded us to, but we were interpreting that as a cultural kind of separation. In the Old Testament, spatial and cultural separation was important. For God was building a physical kingdom, and so separation was called for in areas of culture and proximity. Physical as well as spiritual separation was practiced in the Old Testament and necessary. Notice the concern in verse 2. The holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. In other words, the Jewish genealogy, a very physical thing, needed to stay pure to ensure the fulfillment of the Messianic promises. For it was to David and to Abraham that a Savior would be born. And so the this line of Abraham and David had to be pure for those promises to be fulfilled. This, though, is no longer necessary under the New Testament. Today, God's kingdom is not cultural or spatial. It's spiritual. It's in our hearts. God now reigns in the hearts of men. And therefore, he is no longer concerned about holy seed being intermingled with Gentiles. Instead, I'll tell you what he cares about. He cares about truth being intermingled with error. Or love becoming intermingled with lust. Or godliness becoming intermingled with selfishness. God doesn't care any longer about the pants that we wear. He cares about the values that we share. His truth is cross-cultural. His truth is multi-ethnic, trans-global. 
It's not spatial. It's not cultural. It's not racial. It's spiritual. He wants us to be separate from the world, but in terms of our values and our priorities and our loyalties, not the distance. You know, we we place our house from the, the Gentiles. Different kind of separation. Of course, though, all Ezra's grieving is going on about a sin that he himself did not commit. And I think that's important to point out. His prayer is in the first person. And I think it shows the mark of a good leader. I think a good leader will always identify with the plight of the people that he's leading. And that's what Ezra does here. Notice he cries out in verse 6, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And I want you to read Ezra's prayer tonight because it is one of the most heart-wrenching prayers in all Scripture. He recounts the sin of their past, the reasons they were plundered. He thanks the Lord that a remnant of Jews has survived and returned to the land. In verse 8, Ezra refers to the Jews who've come back to Judah as a tent peg. You know, they are the pioneers that have gained the foothold. They are the the tent peg that is holding down the hopes for the nation, for the future. This remnant of Jews that have returned to the land. And Ezra sums up his feelings in chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. He says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, all that Babylon did to us, Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Notice that. He's been gracious to them, been merciful. And have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. And that's where Ezra's prayer ends. It just, it just ends right there. Without offering any hope for forgiveness. Ezra just couldn't see forgiveness even being a possibility. You know, they had done such a despicable thing. They have, had committed this repetitive sin. And he's just, he just overwhelmed. He can't even see beyond it. I'm sure Ezra hoped that God would forgive them. But he didn't want to be presumptuous. Because he knew that there are limits to God's patience. Ezra had no idea what was about to happen. In chapter 10, the nation has gathered toward to the temple. It's in the wintertime. It's cold outside. It's wet and damp. It's a gloomy day to deal with a gloomy issue. And verse 1 tells us the people wept very bitterly. They confessed their sin in true repentance, but Ezra was devastated and he doesn't know how to respond. But suddenly, a voice rises from the back of the crowd. It's a man named Shechaniah. And he makes one of the most amazing and beautiful statements in all of Scripture. Shechaniah says in verse 2, Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Nowhere will you find a more liberating, a more soothing, a more merciful, a more gracious, a more far-reaching statement than that one. This perhaps is the darkest days in Israel's history. At least that's what Ezra would have said. I have no doubt. Yet at the lowest of lows, God lets us know that you cannot possibly exhaust His mercy and His grace. He offers them another chance. Even after you think you have maxed out mercy, there is still another dose for the heart that is truly repentant of its sin. 
As the people sang earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, for God is good, for His mercy endures, how long? Forever. Isn't that glorious? That's a place, man, where I can hang my hat. Right there. We need to let the truth that was spoken by Shechaniah speak to us tonight. Yet now there is hope for us in spite of what we've done. No matter what it is, there is hope for us in Christ Jesus. God is merciful. But there's still this matter of what to do with these unlawful marriages. Shechaniah suggests that everyone who has married a pagan put away their wives and children. Ezra agrees, and one by one they dissolve the marriages, which brings up a point. Were these Jews right in divorcing their pagan wives? Malachi chapter 2 verse 6 assures us that God hates divorce. Scripture only sanctions three situations where God allows for a divorce and remarriage. First is in the case of adultery. Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19 deal with that. Second is in the case of abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with that issue. And third is when a guilty party repents, but there's no opportunity to reconcile with the spouse. And so what God forgives, He forgets, frees them of, and they're able to move on. But this is none of those situations. There are no other passages in Scripture that sanction what happens here. It reminds me of the two boll weevils who grew up in South Carolina. And one of the boll weevils went to Hollywood and became a famous actor. The other stayed behind in the cotton fields. His life really never amounted to much. And of course, the boll weevil who stayed in South Carolina was known forever thereafter as the lesser of two weevils. And in my opinion, what happens here in Ezra chapter 10 is another case of choosing the lesser of two evils. I mean evils. Either option, understand, would have been a downside. If the marriages remained intact, the messianic line could be lost. The holy seed could be intermingled with the Gentiles. The nation could even be lured back into idolatry. Whereas, if they divorced their wives, they had committed a sin. Indeed, they had deprived their kids of a father. Both were bad options. And the choice was the lesser of two evils. Which brings up another question. Isn't this the situation every believer faces when married to an unbeliever? If they could do this in Ezra 10... Well, then why does Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 7 that a believer married to an unbeliever should not terminate the marriage? Since through the marriage, they might end up converting the unbelieving spouse. Well, to me, here's the difference. The New Testament believer packs a power that the Old Testament saint lacked. We have a new nature. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And this enables you and me as Christians to be the influencer rather than the influencee. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 held high hopes that the believer could positively influence their unbelieving spouse. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in that believer. Whereas Ezra knew that there was a high probability that the Jews in Jerusalem would be negatively influenced by their unbelieving spouses. They lacked the Spirit of God. They had no inner motivation. They only had the external law guiding their actions. And thus he condoned the divorce because he knew that eventually the idolatrous wives would drag the people down. To sum it up, In my opinion, Ezra 10 was a special case. It was a one-time occurrence in Israel, and it should never be a model for the New Testament believer. For that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
But here is the lesson to take home. Ezra didn't just cry about his sin. He didn't just pull the hair out of his beard. True repentance takes real action. It does what needs to be done to keep from repeating the offense. Real repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes to change. In other words, you don't overcome serious sin without getting serious about sin. And tonight, if you're struggling with a sin, even a repetitive sin, there is hope for you in Christ. You need to confess it. You need to repent of it. God will forgive you. But then you need to ask God for some specific action to take and express your willingness to be changed and to follow God. He will lead you into victory, but you must be willing to follow. And that's what the people did here. And that's where Ezra ends. Chapter 10. Next week, we'll be studying the life of one of the shortest men in the Bible. Nehemiah. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the fun we can have in your word. But Lord, we have studied some serious things tonight. And we have looked at some lessons and principles that have a serious impact and ramification for us. And I pray, Lord, we'll take these things to heart. We'll apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that we all will take seriously the challenge to be an Ezra, to be an expert in your word. To not just pick up the Bible casually, but to study it, to get into it, to really learn what you're telling us. Help us, Lord, to be experts in Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the power of the Spirit who dwells in us who enables us to influence this world. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We thank you for the power and presence of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that we'll go out this week. As Zechariah told Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but trusting in the work of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name.